It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Tanya Plebisek, a great friend of mine and a very senior Australian Labor Party Member of Parliament. Tanya, welcome. Thanks, Julia. It's so lovely to be here to talk with you today. This is an unusual format for us. We've spent a lot of time together uh, in the halls of Australian politics, but now I've taken to podcasting. So here we go. I wanted to ask you firstly about your personal background. Your family, of course, is part of one of the great waves of migration to Australia post-World War II. What was it like to grow up in your family home? Well, I think it's a very typical Australian story, Julia. My parents both came to Australia after the Second World War, as you said, from the former Yugoslavia. They're from Slovenia. And weirdly, they actually met in Australia. I mean, Slovenia is not a big country. It's a tiny country. So the fact that they came all this way and met in Australia was something of, I suppose, a great coincidence. They came here as displaced persons or refugees. They both stayed in refugee camps. My dad in Austria, my mum in Italy. And then when they arrived in Australia, they, you know, typical of the migrant story, just were so grateful to their new country for the safety and the peace that they found here. And I think they raised us to be very grateful for that as well. They were very hardworking people, absolutely decent. They're always the people who looked after the neighbours. If someone was sick, they'd you know, take the meals around and mow the lawn. And they raised us, I guess, with an example of service to others and a, and a responsibility to your community. And you grew up with two brothers. In your family home, how did you think about gender roles? Were you taught that your brothers should take the lead? Were your brothers treated differently to you? Well, I think they had a little bit more freedom than I did, which I complained about bitterly (laughs) all the time growing up. (laughs) They tell me it wasn't the case and that as the third child, I had all sorts of freedom that they didn't get. No, I think... You know, in some ways, my parents had quite a traditional relationship because my dad was in the paid workforce and my mum was at home looking after us. But their relationship in other respects was a very equal relationship. He would bring his pay packet home and hand it over to mum and she'd give him some spending money for the week. (laughs) 
And they made all of the big decisions together, um, my parents. And, you know, my brothers, uh, both of them were great cooks, even as quite young boys. There was no real expectation of different gender roles. My dad used to take me to work with him on a Saturday sometimes. He was a plumber and I was his his offsider. It was my job to, you know, bring the wrench under the house and, you know, climb under there with the spiders and so on. So there wasn't any real expectation of different gender roles. And my parents were very encouraging of our studies as kids. We didn't have a lot of money, but if something was for our education, if it was an excursion or a book or anything like that, that that would be prioritised in the family spending. And they had, because they had such limited opportunities for formal education themselves, my parents were absolutely supportive of us going to university if we could, pursuing any sort of career. They, they just wanted us to do what made us happy. I've got an image of you now fighting off huge spiders. The overseas audience listening to this podcast is going to think that was, you know, risking your life every moment, given what they think about Australian spiders. But you obviously lived through that childhood. I encountered a redback or two, but nothing too serious. <laughs> nothing too serious. Your parents valued education. You succeeded at education. You were a bright young kid. At what point in your journey did you start to think, this isn't kind of an equal world for women, something's going on here? Oh, I picked that very early. I noticed in primary school, and it wasn't because I saw sexism at home. It was at school just really nonsense rules. Like the girls weren't allowed to play soccer in the boys' playground because the girls might get hurt. (laughs) I just thought that was ridiculous. And when I I questioned the teachers about it, th- this whole notion that girls were so delicate that they couldn't cope with the normal game of soccer that the boys were playing, I just it was ridiculous. I even thought it was ridiculous that we had separate lines for girls and boys lining up. So I questioned all of those things as a kid. It would have been so annoying to teach me. <laughs> <laughs> but they were nonsense divisions that made no sense to me. And I had some fantastic, great feminist teachers in high school in particular. So I, I suppose that initial observation that girls were treated as, as inherently weak, I, I was able to put a political framework around that as I got the language, as I got older. And who taught you that language? Oh, I think I had, as I say, terrific feminist teachers growing up and I read a lot. I read a lot of feminist books. Girls can do anything. I read a compilation of feminist essays when I was probably 12 or 13 that made me really irritating for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was very important not to feel like I was the only one noticing this inequality. I think it was really important to hear from other girls and women that they found it at a minimum, irritating, and in some cases, you know, much worse than that. And at what point did that sense of unfairness, irritation, learning the language of feminism, at what point did that spiral into, I'm going to do something about this, I want to be a leader in this cause? Well, I'm going to do something started very early. I campaigned in year five or six in primary school for the girls to be allowed to play soccer and for us to have mixed gender lines at assembly and I won both of those campaigns but I, I think I you know suspect that my teacher was very happy that I that I noticed things like that and was very happy to sort of facilitate the change 
really in high school, I think, I became involved in a more formal way with feminist organisations. I went to an all-girls school, a public school, but an all-girls school. For your overseas listeners, I'd say public school in Australia means a government-funded school that's open to everyone. And through university, I was women's officer at university. My first job out of university was working for the New South Wales government's Ministry for the Status and Advancement of Women in the Domestic Violence Unit. So my work led me to a formal role in an area that I felt passionately about. It feels like really something that's been with me all my life. And you get an opportunity to run for parliament. You're living in a seat in the centre of Sydney where the male member of parliament unexpectedly announces his retirement. People had thought that he would run several more times. Can you talk us through how you decided, yes, I'm going to run, this is this is for me? Well, Peter Baldwin, the sitting member, as you say, announced his retirement quite unexpectedly. And I was living in the seat. I was very politically active in the Labor Party, but I was pretty young. I think I was 27 when he announced that he was going to retire. It was, in those days, considered a safe seat. It was very likely that whoever the Labor candidate was would win. So the the Labor Party pre-selection was pretty fiercely fought. There were 13 people who were vying to um, become the Labor candidate. And I really threw my hat in the ring because I had kind of nothing to lose. There were a lot of people encouraging me to run. To be honest, I had doubts that Labor Party members would vote for a 27-year-old. And I thought at the very least, it will be a great experience. And I think the way I One was that I took it more seriously and worked harder than the other candidates. There were fantastic other candidates and people who've gone on to to do wonderful things. But I was pretty relentless. And I think one of the things that I'd observe is none of this stuff happens by accident. You know, you actually do have to set the goal and work towards it very methodically if you want to win a pre-selection like the one I faced. And you have to build a, a coalition of people who are willing to, to back you in. And I had a lot of terrific mentors that were very supportive and able to give me good advice about how to run a campaign like this. I'd, I'd never been involved in this way in a, in a pre-selection campaign before. So it was a very new experience and having people who had been on the inside of campaigns before was very useful. And your doubts, were they about your youth or your gender? Because this was, of course, the first round of pre-selections after Labor adopted its affirmative action rules. So did you think being a woman would actually be a net advantage in this new environment? I didn't have any doubts about my capacity to do the job. I had worked as a political staffer. I had seen members of parliament at work and I believed I could do the job. My doubts were only that other people may think that I was really too young was my greatest doubt. I wasn't worried about being a woman because the seat is a very progressive seat. It had a very large and active Labor Party membership and I think there was a feeling within the Labor Party membership that it would be important to select a woman to replace Peter Baldwin. And if it hadn't been me, I think it would have been, I mean, the top several candidates were all women. If it had been a a different seat in a different part of the country, perhaps that wouldn't have been the case. But certainly in Sydney, it was more than likely that a woman would have been pre-selected even if it hadn't been me. 
And broadening the lens a little bit, the affirmative action rule that the Labor Party adopted, I mean, I remember that debate. I was an activist in that debate, as you were, and that rule didn't come about easily. It had to be fought for, a lot of opposition, and a lot of you know people saying it distorts merit and all the rest of it. And yet here we are all these years later and it's made a profound difference for the shape of the Australian Labor Party. What are your recollections about the affirmative action rule and what do you think it's meant? Well, I remember the the 1994 Labor Party conference where the first affirmative action rule was introduced very, very clearly. I remember, uh, as you say, it was hard fought. It took a lot of organisation and a lot of campaigning and there was strong resistance to it. And I remember the flood of women running down onto the conference floor as the rule was passed and the, the jubilation. I think it has been profound, not so much because the rule has come into effect and a woman has been pre-selected in a close contest over a man so many times. I think the most profound impact it's had is in sending a message that we want women to stand as Labor Party candidates, that we want a party that better reflects the Australian community, that it looks more like the community that we represent. So the technical use of it has been less frequent than you'd think, the symbolic importance of it is much greater than I ever imagined. I remember a senior male figure from the time in the party rushing up to one of the women who had been at the centre of that campaign saying at the adoption of the rule, you bitches, you've won. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And she immediately said to all of us that she wanted that on her gravestone. (laughs) You know, here she lies, insert name, the bitch, she won. So we were pretty pleased to see the affirmative action rule. Of course, the other side of politics has taken a different approach in Australia. They've gone for mental training to try and increase the number of women. And I think it's a really interesting case study of do you fix the structures or do you fix the women, inverted commas? Is it that the women aren't leaning in enough or that the structures aren't welcoming enough or is it a bit of both? What do you think of that broad debate as well as how it's played out in Australian politics? Well, I think no business would imagine that that it could run without setting targets, like profitability targets, for example, uh, market penetration targets. You, you wouldn't set up a business and say, oh, we'll just see how it goes. No. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let nature take its course. I think targets are very important for any organisation because you are, you're saying this is what we're prepared to be measured on. This is what we say is important. Please judge us on what, what we have said is an important part of our mission. But I think there's also a place for mentoring, whether it's formal or informal, and for talent development, talent spotting. I think we still have fantastically successful women who wouldn't think of putting themselves forward for a career in politics. So it is important, I think, as a leader in the Labor Party that I would encourage other women, the next generation of political activists, to consider taking the step from political involvement at the grassroots into a parliamentary career. I think the two go together. But at the end of the day, the Labor Party is at 47% female representation in the federal parliament now. The Conservative parties, the coalition, are at 27%. I think that kind of answers the question about whether targets are important. Absolutely. 
And, of course, another thing that puts women off politics is the adversarial nature of it. And you've served coming into the parliament in 1998 in uh, almost every capacity one can have. So initially as a backbencher, we were backbenchers together. Then we were on a journey together of more senior positions in opposition. Then we were in government together where you've served as a very senior minister. And then you've served as deputy leader of the Labor opposition. Across all of that, you've been involved in some fierce contests in the Australian Parliament. How do you think about that adversarial nature of politics? Is it one women can come to dominate or should the feminist cause be to reshape the environment and to make it a different environment than the combative one it is now? The stakes are high in politics. You're making decisions most days that affect the course of history particularly when you're in government. And when the stakes are high, you, you can't kind of just go with the flow. You, you have to have a view about how things could be better, what it would take to improve a particular situation. And you have to fight for that view. You have to be prepared to, um, to state a position, back your judgment, fight for the thing that you believe in. How we do that doesn't have to be horrendous or personal or vitriolic or malevolent or damaging to the people who are involved in this contest of ideas. And I'd say, I mean, you asked earlier about whether we need to fix the women and and teach them to lean in more. The idea that that in a, a strong contest of ideas, we have to behave in a particular way, I think that's wrong. I think people can only be who they are and behave in the way that is comfortable for them if they want to be perceived as authentic by the Australian community. And so I don't think we need to teach women to be more aggressive in the pursuit of their ideas or ideals. But I think we need to be very clear that when you believe in something, it's important to fight for it. Do you think in the discussions you've had in the community that sort of question time contest puts a lot of women off? I don't think question time puts women off a career in politics. I think question time puts many Australians off the whole idea of politics yeah. altogether. I mean, they if you are passionately engaged in political debate, you look at what's happening in question time and you think, wow, that's great that we really scored a point just then. If you are marginally interested, you see two groups of adults shouting at each other in question time, you think, I'm not, I'm not even going to investigate that further. I think the thing that is more likely to put women off rather than question time, and I think it probably puts a lot of men off as well, is what's happening in social media today. I think there is just so much poison in social media and we have polarised debate so much today that a lot of people of goodwill think, I don't want to spend my life being the subject of this kind of awful personal commentary that you see today. Just on the social media point, how do you experience that social media? I mean, for you, what has it been like? And what do you think we can do to change that level of toxicity for women in the public square? Well, I wish I knew the answer to how we change the toxicity. I don't worry about it so much for myself because I've been in public life more than two decades now and I'm pretty used to people not liking me, you know. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I worry more about other people reading that and thinking, why would I enter public life if that's the sort of treatment that people get? So I worry about the effect on other women who might be considering going into politics. Obviously worry about the effect on my kids. Kids, digital natives, they are so plugged in all the time. They know exactly what people think of their mother, my three kids, and, you know, reassuring them that I couldn't care less if, you know, people say mean things about me as long as I feel like I'm doing the right thing. But that's a hard message to get across to people that love you. So I think the effect on the lives of the people around the subject of that sort of vitriol can be very damaging as well. I think it tells us something kind of more disturbing, though, about the level of underlying misogyny there still is. If you, in your personal relationships, in your... I'm married to a gorgeous man who's very supportive. I've got fantastic male friends, I've got a beautiful brother, I had a wonderful father. If in your personal relationships you're not encountering this sort of prejudice very often, to be reminded that there are still people who think that women shouldn't speak, shouldn't be involved in politics, that it's wrong to ask that women's historical contributions to our nation be acknowledged. Just to be reminded that there are still people like that can be a little bit of a shock to the system, I think. I think it is a big shock to the system and that it can be so deep. And I spent a lot of time thinking, has it always been like that? And social media has just let it out of the box because it's given people real time and anonymous ways of engaging. Or is it objectively worse now? And it's one of those unanswerable questions. But I do feel the level of toxicity now for women is extraordinary. And it's really hard to know, Julia. I mean, we've had this discussion before, whether you call it out to try and fix it or whether you ignore it because the trolls love oxygen. And I I think, you know, during your time as Prime Minister, you thought and a number of us thought that the better thing to do is let the action speak for themselves. You passed more than 500 pieces of legislation, most productive Prime Minister ever. And to let that speak for itself, I thought at the time that was the right thing to do. But, you know, reading Anne Summers' essay about some of the foul things that people were saying online about you, I, I wonder whether it would have been better to call it out earlier whether it would have emboldened those people, whether it would have satisfied them that they were being noticed. I don't know. And I I actually still don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, I think this is the debate of our time. I think for me, looking back on it now, I think I should have sort of called it out earlier because the longer you left it, the harder it was then to disaggregate it from the normal working of government and the ups and downs of political popularity in government. But no right answer, unfortunately, no right answer. You mentioned your kids and, of course, in the time you've been in Parliament and serving as a very senior member, you've had three kids. So can you just take the audience through at what stage of your career you had each of your children? Yeah, look, I had my oldest, I've been elected just over 20 years. That was my 20th anniversary towards the end of last year. And my oldest daughter is 18. So elected in 98, 2001, 2005, my first two children. And then I had my baby in 2010. And 
that third child was kind of, that was around the time when I was hoping to go into cabinet and I found, by a happy surprise, I was pregnant with child number three. And it was a very interesting time because I really did think, well, that's it. You know, I've got three kids now. It's probably going to be very difficult to take the next step in my career with three children. And as it happened, I did have to hang back for a bit. It wouldn't wouldn't have been the right time. But I did go into Cabinet when you were leader. And so the delay, you know, the delay was just a delay. And I, I think one of the really important things to remind women of when they are considering a high-pressure career is that you can do both. You absolutely can do both. And I wouldn't ever want anybody to imagine that politics and family life are incompatible. I've been doing it for more than 20 years. These lives are compatible, but it it takes a bit of <laughs> it takes a bit of juggling sometimes. Well, I'm going to have to ask you the question though, how did you do it because I can imagine lots of women listening to this thinking that sounds impossible. Three kids, politics, public exposure, travel, Australia's a big country. You've got to get round it as a federal member of parliament and the more senior you are, the more you've got to get round it. How did it all come together? How is it possible? Well, I think it's for me, I always wanted to have children. I didn't imagine a life where I didn't have kids. You know, I know that does that's no guarantee, but it was important for me. And I always wanted a career that was about doing good for others. And politics is an extraordinary opportunity to do that. So having a job that I absolutely loved, wanting a family, I just knew I'd have to roll the dice and make it work as as issues come up, you solve them, really. It takes a lot of organisation. I know these are ridiculous things to mention, but I cook in batches and freeze food. I, <laughs> I get my clothes out each night that I'm going to wear the next day because I don't want to be making decisions under pressure at five o'clock in the morning in the dark as I'm rushing off to work. You try and reduce the pressure by being super organised and balance that at the same time with being, you know, present when you're with your kids. Essentially, working families all over Australia are doing it. You know, they muddle through, I muddle through. You just just do your best. Just do your best. (laughs) I think one of the things with kids and politics is people would assume that the hardest struggle juggle time is when the kids are at smallest, you know, when you, you know, bottles and nappies and how's this all add up. But I don't have kids, so what expertise do I have? None. But I've watched you and I've watched other great colleagues have their families whilst they've been in politics. And it actually seems to me, yes, there's that struggle juggle and the logistics around babies, but it in some ways gets harder the bigger the kids get. Can you Mm. talk about that? Because I think that's something not apparent from the outside. Yeah, it definitely gets more complicated as they get older. So babies are fantastic because (laughs) particularly when you're Feeding, you can take them anywhere. When they get hungry, you stick them on the boob. When they, you know, need a nappy change, you change the nappy, and then they go to sleep. Like it's, it's beautiful. And <laughs> most places you go. In the first year when I was breastfeeding each of my children, they came with me a lot to community functions, school visits, you know, all sorts of places. And there's always someone who wants to hold the baby. It's not hard to get a willing pair of hands when you've when you've got a gorgeous little baby with you. As kids get older, well, different different kids are 
are different. You know, some are more easygoing than others, but they get much more able to express their disapproval if you're not there when they want you there. And when they're teenagers too, life is complicated for teenagers and they want, well, my kids do anyway, a parent to talk to and not when it's convenient for the parent to talk to them. It can be 11 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night when they're coming home from a study session at the library or a you know after-school job. It does get more complicated, but again, One thing I'd say about it is my older two kids have had so many incredible experiences because of my job. And my youngest one at eight is starting to to recognise this as well. They go to community festivals with religions or ethnicities that they're unfamiliar with. They learn something every time. They understand more about politics, social justice, the economy than most other kids their age. And having to be a little bit independent has been good for them in other ways as well. So I think there's upsides too. Absolutely. I want to talk about the choices, though. You referred to the time that you delayed your entry into Cabinet because you had your third child. And I remember us talking about that at the time because you certainly had a claim to press to be in Cabinet but deliberately decided to hang back. And then after the Australian election just earlier this year, there was a time when you considered running to be leader of the Labor Party, but decided against it and said to the Australian community, now is not my time. Can you explain to us what you meant by that? Well, I'd been the deputy leader for six years, so I had a pretty good idea of what the leadership entailed and... It's a lot of time on the road. It's a lot of time away. And it just wouldn't have been just wouldn't have been right for our family at that time. And it was funny, Julia, because I had I had people writing columns or sending me emails saying, I'll resign from my job. I'll come and look after your kids. And (laughs) that kind of Which is heartwarming. It's gorgeous, but kind of misses the point. I love my job. I love being the member for Sydney. I have loved being a minister and a shadow minister. I've felt so privileged to be the deputy leader of the Labor Party. I have loved every minute of it. And I so value the, the trust and faith that people put in me. But you know, I do have to think about my other responsibilities as well. And it's not the case that I didn't have a supportive family. They were very supportive. It was about how I felt about the distribution of my time across my work and and my family. And I think, you know, nobody likes hearing politicians complain about how hard their lives are. So I'm not going to do that. But it is a, it's a seven day a week responsibility as it is. And seven days a week on the road is just not something that I wanted for my kids. And do you think men think about those choices differently, face up to those choices differently? Can you imagine facing that choice as a male politician? I think more so today than a couple of generations ago. We obviously had one of my colleagues from Western Australia who pulled the pin on his parliamentary career in his first term because he said it was having a big impact on his family. And certainly my husband's a senior public servant. He has knocked back job offers to move into state or move to the federal bureaucracy, all, you know, all sorts of offers because it would have been incompatible with family life. So I do think 
modern fathers more thoughtful about the impact of their work on their kids than my father's generation or our grandparents' generation. And, you know, these these things vary from family to family and between couples. There, there might be many people who wouldn't make the same decision I made. There'd be others who, you know, look, the point is as, as many people as there are, there are that many different ways of organising these competing demands. And with people saying, I'll give up my job, I'll come and look after your kids. (laughs) I still want them to turn up. I'm still waiting. (laughs) Waiting for the knock on the door. Hasn't come yet. (laughs) Uh, I I had the reverse experience because, of course, I was criticised for not having children. And I do remember a day in Melbourne's West where I then lived. I was walking down the street and a woman screamed to a stop in a car wound down the window, two kids in the back and yelled out the window, if you need to have kids, you can take mine. (laughs) So almost ended up with two very quickly. But with people offering, you know, these kind of wild offers, I'll take care of your kids, is that telling us something about the hunger that there is to see female leadership, that people do want to see more women come through? And were you concerned when you made your decision, which of course is an intensely personal one, but were you concerned concerned that it might send a message that ultimately this juggle of work and family life doesn't even out anymore. It gets to a point where it's too hard. I did think about that, Julia. I keep saying to other women, I say, you are not responsible for the life and fate and opportunities of every woman. You need to make the decision that is best for you. I say that to other people all the time. But when it came to the decision I was making, I thought, oh, I hope hope there aren't people out there who take this as a sign that politics is incompatible with family life or that women can't have three children and operate at the highest level of their organisation. I hope people don't take that message from my decision because ultimately I I have been doing it for more than 20 years. I've been doing it at very senior levels for a substantial amount of that time. And I think it does kind of go back a little bit to the you, you really can't win, can you? Because if you've got no kids, you get criticised for you know not understanding what families are going through. If you've got kids, you get criticised for neglecting them. There's basically no right answer. And so what can you do but please yourself? You, you have to do the thing that's best for you in your life and, and for your family. Carve out your own answers. Now, we are going to turn to our features section, a few standard questions for you. The first of them uh, really flows from the discussion we had about social media. And what's the worst misogyny you would say you've had to deal with in your career? Oh, look, I wouldn't even begin to repeat some of the revolting things that have been said on social media and so on. But I think the thing that gets me most is when you're sitting in a meeting and you say something and five minutes later a bloke says the same thing and everybody goes, oh, great idea. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't believe that that still happens, but it still happens. All the time. All the time. (laughs) It does happen all the time. I speak at a lot of conferences for women and it's one of the things that's most raised by the audience. And we actually practice little uh, reactions, you know, another woman round the table perhaps saying, oh, well, I think Tanya indicated, you know, so that the ownership of the idea gets marked. 
Looking around our world, we always try and find a fact to talk to our guests about. I always try and make them fun facts, but this is not a fun fact. The fact is that in November 2018, only three countries had 50% or more women in parliament in single or lower houses, so where government is formed. Reaction? So, it's so disappointing and frustrating because we know how to fix it. You know, we know some of the elements of how to fix it anyway. And we know that companies, governments that are more representative of of the community that they're part of make better decisions. Third question, if you woke up boss of the world, what's the one thing you would change for women? Education. Education? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a big deal in Australia, obviously, but if you're talking about the whole world, one of the greatest tragedies is the, the missed opportunities for individuals that being denied an education leads to and the, the economic loss to nations and to the planet if we don't educate our girls. I don't know who is boss of the world, so... <laughs> I'm I'm working on that one. <laughs> working on that one. It's the whole, you know, when the aliens land and say, take me to your leader, who will we take them to? We need to answer that question sometime. And final question. Virginia Woolf says, as long as she thinks of a man, no one objects to a woman thinking. Tanya says? Do the hardest thing in the world. Act for yourself. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. <laughs>